We're back to the Neil Haley Show here on the Total Celebrity segment, and I'm excited to welcome to the program, again, somebody that I learned so much in my media career, listened to him in the morning for years, and again, a great NFL player as well, great NFL analyst, and much, much more, Mike Golick. Mike, thanks for stopping by, and you're with, again, you're tackling diabetes, and it what a great mission. Everybody has to have that kind of mission in their lives to do that. To do that. And joining us also is Hope Warshaw. She's an education specialist that's going to educate us all about diabetes as well. Thanks again, uh, Mike, for stopping by and Hope for stopping by. How are you guys? Doing well, Neil. Thanks. All right, Mike. So tell me specifically enough why this means so much to you to tackle diabetes. What is the... Well, I, yeah, listen, this... this became a lifestyle for me when I was diagnosed. I was diagnosed about 10 years after I was done playing. Now my father uh, was diagnosed as well. So I knew that there was a possibility because it was in the family that this would happen. But still, uh, you know, I had to now decide how am I going to deal with this? How am I going to live this new lifestyle after a lifestyle of being an athlete and eating whatever I wanted and working out all the time and knowing I could get away with things. Now I had to change that. So, you know, with the help of my wife, we, we, I do everything around sports and team sports. So I knew I needed a game plan. It was, you know, getting a doctor as my coach. My wife was my teammate and I, I, you know, brought in others as well to help me, but it was still a learning process. And one of the big things I learned, Neil, was everybody deals with it differently. 34 million people deal with type two diabetes. That's 485 filled football stadiums of people. And everybody deals with it differently. How I deal with it, others deal with it differently. That's why I really wanted to get involved. And I really enjoyed talking to some other former professional athletes like Kyle Love in football and John Cruck in baseball about their individual journey. Again, and this is all part of the Talking Type U campaign uh, that, that I, I'm very, very happy to be a part of because it's not just athletes. It's everybody outside the world of sports, in the world of sports who's dealing with this. It's their own individual journey that they have to go on. So when Mike got diagnosed, Hope, and you think about this, how do other people kind of see those warning signs that, you know what, I'm, I, need to get I need to get tested to see, you know, if I have this, especially. And, you know, like the, as, an, as a former athlete myself, so like I understand exactly what what we go through because specifically enough we have to put on a certain amount of weight i was a former professional wrestler and different things and i'd have to eat really weren't looking at dietitians looking at how much weight we could put on right how we could keep the weight on and it, it didn't matter it could be beer and pizza so you don't really look at specifically what you're eating when you're really young and then it could be a certain thing so what are those warning signs of Right. So you asked about warning signs. Yes. The reality is with type two diabetes, people often don't have warning signs uh, like they may, might with um, type one diabetes. So it's really important that through the years people get screened and checked for having elevated glucose levels. So there's no real symptoms a lot of times no, no um not necessarily it's not necessarily that sort of tiredness and frequently urinating that it is with with type 1 diabetes but what is critically important is that um people do get checked and if you learn that you do have diabetes that you start taking care of it and taking action from day one and sort of create 
key critical elements of an action plan are um, healthy eating, and you alluded to that, physical activity for sure, even if it's just a walking program. Um, a lot of people with, with diabetes type 2 need to be taking medication. And then the overarching monitoring, monitoring uh, with a glucose meter what is going on day to day, and then using that data that you collect. And uh, typically today, people are using technology to gather that data and then using it to analyze what's working in your plan well and what isn't working well, and then making tweaks to change that. And also diabetes evolves over the years. What you do on year one of having type 2 diabetes is not necessarily what you need to be doing at year 10, year 15 of having diabetes. All right. So let's kind of jump, Mike, into what you did. How did you change your lifestyle and everything once getting diagnosed? Well, and, and to go back really quick, what's important is to say, how, how do you know is to get the checkups. Get your, at least yearly checkups. It's something I have always done. And that's how I found out, you know, sometimes, especially guys, as we know, we don't want to go. Uh, if we are, oh, I feel fine. I don't need to see a doctor. Well, getting those annual checkups at least is going to help without question. And for me, it was very basic for me. Okay. I knew I had to change, you know, again, it wasn't a diet. It was a lifestyle of how I was going to eat and what I was going to go through and how I was going to deal with nutrition and sleep and hydration and exercise. So what I did, Neil, all, and quite honestly, I jumped into modern technology. And with One Touch Solutions, they, they have customized programs that can, you can use, say, through Fitbit. If I wear Fitbit all the time, Noom, Welldoc, Cecilia Health, and all the information that Hope was talking about, especially through my One Touch Glucose Meter, goes into these different programs. And I feed those programs information and they kick me back what I'm doing and what I need to do. You know, either AI information or I can actually chat with someone like Hope live with some of these programs to ask questions and get answers. So the big thing to me is use the help around you. You don't have to do this alone. There are so many ways to help so many programs, especially the One Touch Solution has to help you on this journey because it's very difficult to do alone. Yeah, well, absolutely. And Hope, I guess that's the thing is once people get diagnosed, then sometimes they feel like their life is going to change dramatically. And it's really just a lifestyle change, but people like you hope help through that process, right? We do. So I'm a certified diabetes care and education specialist, and I really encourage people to seek us out because we're able to give you the skills and give you the know-how to um, manage your diabetes on your own. It really needs to integrate into your lifestyle. So people should be very comfortable advocating for themselves with their healthcare providers to say, well, this is something I feel like I can do. That's something that I feel like I'm not ever gonna do. <laughs> and because that's how you get, as Mike calls it, a game plan that's going to work for you. And it needs to evolve over time. Mindset's another thing, Mike, right? Especially once you start changing your diet, right? It's, it's how do you, you know, we all know we, we, we're up late at night. There's certain, you know, 
food commercials on. Now it's much easier now by just ordering. You can order anytime you want and food comes to your door. Yeah. How do you keep that willpower going? Well, that, a support group, be it your wife. I was very open with my wife and my kids about this. My dad was, was had it in an era where they kind of kept it private. And that's that was his choice. And I, I'm not you know, criticizing that at all. I was very open about it. So again, the more help you can get, you know, in the house, my wife put put a lot of clean food in the house, you know, work out, we work out together. Who do you work out with? Who do you, you know, interactions in your daily life with that can help along the way. It's I think the people that try and do it alone, unless you have unbelievable willpower and there, I'm sure there are those that do uh, that can do it. But other than that, seek out the help. You know, because there are those temptations. And you know what? Every now and then it's okay to give in to them. I'm an 85, 15 guy, 85 good, 15 bad. I still do it. I, I, I'm not going to sit here and say I never eat something that I shouldn't. I do. But through all these programs now, I, I learn when I can have that. And if I have it, then what I need to do after I have something like that to get back to where I need. The biggest thing to me, and I, that's why I associate it with sports, is I come from a team sports. Have that team around you from family to friends to healthcare professionals to doctors, whatever, whoever you need in your life to help keep you on the right path. Do you think during the career of an NFL player, even, you know, when you see certain players that we're going to call them these because they're unbelievable athletes that they could at one point have this. Do you, are they, again, you get the NFL doctors all the time, but once you retire, do you reach out to retired players at times and say, Hey, you know, uh, are you, are you really still focusing on your health and things like that and try to be that advocate? So through the, the NFLPA, actually, I, I have spoken and done videos for, for ball players in obesity afterward because that it is what happens. Listen, I've been working out since 10 years old. I retired from football at 32. It's a lot of years of working out, eating whatever I wanted, drinking whatever I wanted because I knew I was going to work it off to when you're done, you don't do those things anymore, but you keep eating. All of a sudden, your weight goes up. So we're really starting to get involved in programs now um for former athletes about that and about obesity and, and about right when you're done you know you live that itinerary life now you have to do it on your own so again i encourage use the people around you to get in the right habit and the great thing about playing ball you get a checkup every year so you know what's going on with your body and you need to continue that when you're done playing and this is again true for people outside of sports as well is to be monitored to know where you stand so, Mike, best place that we can connect with Hope and yourself and learn more about what's going on. Where's the best place to go? TalkingTypeU.com is the place to go. That way you can hear the interviews that I did with some of the former professional athletes. You have a chance in some sweepstakes to win some healthcare equipment like home gym equipment, things like that. But TalkingTypeU.com is a great, great place to go to get some great information. Mike, thanks for stopping by. Hope, appreciate all the great information. And it really gets you to know get to your doctors, get, look and always get tested for all the different things that are out there because you never know what can happen. And then once you are diagnosed, it's time to make a game plan. And the best place is to connect with you guys. So I appreciate you guys. Thanks again for stopping Thank by. Thank you, Neil. All right, take care. Thanks. You're listening and watching The Neil Haley Show. And we'll be back in just a moment. We're back to the Neil Haley Show here on the Caregiver Dave uh, Celebrity Segment. And I'm excited to welcome the program Caregiver Dave Nassani. Dave, how are you, man? What's going on? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. We're always happy to have this, this opportunity to talk. And, you know, when you hear of a show 
the set, even the second go round when it comes to Twin Peaks, the fans are just absolutely go crazy for this. And James is going to explain that and talk about Potato Dreams of America's. So I'm excited to welcome to program James Rixoni. James, thanks for stopping by, man. How are you? I'm doing really well. Thank you so much. It's a beautiful day out in Seattle. And so I got no complaints. Seattle. My daughter lives there. A sunny. Oh, right on. A sunny yeah, right. Yeah. In Seattle. When does that ever happen? Maybe how many? It, us- yeah. it usually it usually happens when I'm working my job, and so today I have the day off, and it's it's a first. So I, I plan on going out and enjoying it at some point. Yeah, exactly. Seattle has Seattle has the highest uh, suicide rate because of the cloudiness. So today there are, will be no suicides. Hey, Amen. Hey, that's a good thing. We're getting <laughs> yeah. some. We're getting some vitamin D. So I think that's hey, good for man. everyone. Hey, yeah. Yeah. So and, and it's so that I guess sun is such an important thing. But let's just jump into James. Did you always want to be an actor? Is that something you always wanted to do? Um, I, I was either going to be an engineer or an actor when I was a kid. Uh, I had a lot of energy. ADHD is what they call it these days. And I was flunking out of flunking out of school. Um, and I remember my mom coming up to me and telling me, "What do you want to be?" and I was kind of in a mix of watching a lot of Robert De Niro films at like 12, which at 33, I kind of look back and I'm like, yeah, maybe you shouldn't have watched those. Um, but my mom put me into a theater and my dad did too. And it basically, I took to it like a duck to water. I, I honed in, got hyper-focused. And ever since then, I was about 16. Uh, these opportunities kind of just keep falling in my lap. It's like the universe is working for me in that realm. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So what was your really first big break, James? Uh, so I got, that's a good question. I got started in theater, um, doing just community theater. That was the, the next stepping stone was I was actually, I was doing big uh, production theater and starring in that when I was about 19. Um, and then as soon as that ended, I got the opportunity to co-star in a film called Divination, where it's like this B-rated film where I play an angel. <laughs> so that was a trip. And then mm-hmm. simultaneously, Toby Maguire, the guy who plays Spider-Man, uh, he was shooting oh. a movie up in yeah, he was shooting a movie up in Seattle. And I had the opportunity to be his body double. And so it was a great education of being on set. Uh, watching how all the mechanisms work and it was kind of an introduction to the concept of celebrity which as I grow older more and more that idea sort of fades away and it's mostly for me it's mostly about doing just really solid work Uh Um, and so that was kind of my big break and I was young I, I you know so motivated and it really served me and I know a lot of my friends kind of went to college to study film I was unfortunately not I didn't have the, the opportunity to go to college. And so I went right into the workforce and it was, it served me really well. Yeah, well good for you. That's, so that's, that's interesting. You talk about Toby Maguire. What movie was it? Your, his body double. It was called the details. Um, it was basically just about a guy who was a middle-aged guy that was kind of having a, a midlife crisis and a lot of crazy stuff ensues. that kind of challenges his character. And, um, it was, dude, it was so awesome because I got to work with Ray Liotta and yeah, man, growing up, I watching Goodfellas, you know, you kind of put these actors, you put these people on a pedestal they're almost like gods. And then funny story, I was working up in concrete Washington in the middle of the woods 
and we were shooting. And the whole time I kept hearing Ray Liotta was on set. Ray Liotta was on set. And um, there was a moment where I had to go to the bathroom. So I jump into the woods and I do a uh, number one. And I'm on uh, I'm peeing on this tree. And then all of a sudden I look on the other side of the tree. Ray Liotta is doing the same thing as me. <laughs> And so my introduction to Ray Liotta was, was that situation. Um, but he was a super kind guy. Like, and it's really nice to meet celebrities with that status that are uh, kind and, and, and communicative like that. Yeah. You have other uh, things that you do, right? Are you into art? Yeah. Um, I, man, I play music. Um, I, I paint. Well, one of the coolest things that I kind of consider art is uh, I really dove in after meeting David Lynch. Uh, I really dove into yoga and meditation. Um, and I've been finding that, you know, the way that that sort of helps you as an artist uh, kind of breaks down all the barriers. And you can uh -huh. just have this free flowing expression and exploration of what art truly is. So I think we're all artists to some degree. Yeah. Now let's talk about Twin Peaks. And so I remember the original Twin Peaks. This experience, would you consider this really taking you off to the next level or especially where you keep living the brand of Twin Peaks by being this, having this opportunity? How did this opportunity happen and how today you still are known for Twin Peaks and are involved in Twin Peaks in some sort of way because of the, I guess, the following that it has? Yeah, that's, man. That's a great question, too. Um, it changed my life completely, completely. Uh, I think a lot of people, especially in the Western world, uh, really dream of the idea of celebrity or really dream of this idea of working with your heroes. And uh, I was funny. I was almost going to quit acting. And my girlfriend was like, I had this audition that they couldn't they didn't tell me anything about. And I was like, man, that's going to be for a stupid Ford commercial. I'm not that, con you know, I'm not into that. My girlfriend was like, just go. <laughs> and I, I was like, all right. So I get in this interview uh, with the casting director and she was like, what do you do? And I was like, well, I'm a bartender. Well, what do you like about bartending? And I said, no matter where anybody comes from in the world, I've realized we're all the same. Uh, we all want a good drink. We all want to be listened to, and we all want to just have a good time. And lo and behold, I got a call about a week later, and they said that you are cast as Deputy Jesse Holcomb with the Twin Peaks Sheriff's Department. I called my mom right after that. She cried. <laughs> she she was just ecstatic. A real job. Was, <laughs> yeah, 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 you made it, baby. Um and then basically with the creative property that is Twin Peaks and David Lynch, uh, it's, it is, it's going to last uh, with me forever because there's a whole different generation that's my age that still enjoys it. Um, and I think especially with the age of superhero films and, you know, this very aesthetic form of entertainment, it's a breath of fresh air to watch this kind of neorealistic, abstract uh, art that David does. Yeah. Are you still going with your girlfriend? Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, I'm not getting. Yeah, she's a keeper. You better hang on to her. Uh, <laughs> she at least give you that 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 want and need because we always have these times, Dave, where we're going to say, "Are we really going to try something?" And then someone quit. pushes us forward, and we quit. And we don't go push forward, and that's an important yeah. thing. And, I want to jump back close. Yes, so I want to jump back to David Lynch for a second. So basically, Dave, just to kind of, I, I don't know, were you a fan of the first Twin Peaks, Dave? 
because I was more and I watched a couple times, but I want to learn more about the newer one because that's the one that's, you know, putting James on the map and now having opportunities like talking about Potato, Potato Dreams of America. Dave, were you a fan of Twin I, Peaks? I honestly uh, never got into Twin Peaks. I was just too busy doing something else. Exactly. There's just so many. And now there's just so many shows. Yeah. Finally binge watched Ozark. <laughs> and wow, thank goodness I did. Because uh, I've been more and more watching movies lately, and my I, wife's been watching that, and I've been yeah, watching that. That's, yeah, so, that's, so, oh my really god, addicting. So, so Ozark, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, and then they decide a part two. Come on now, and we want to know when it's out. So you know, see, isn't it? Don't you agree, James? There's just too many shows to binge. That's the problem to catch up. Yeah. All the shows. that's why I don't go to the supermarket. She sends me for one item, and there's 20 different selections. You know, and I. I can't do it. <laughs> I, so, spend, I spend more time looking for a movie on Netflix than I actually watch the movie and fall yes, in that category. Yes, yes. Is, is that because um, of your, you know, your behind the scenes, not just acting, but directing and stuff? Is that one reason why you think, James, and when you're kind of like, am I going to really sit down and watch this movie? No, that's a, that's, a, that's hilarious. Well, first and foremost, I agree with you, Dave. I was never really into David Lynch. Um, I was more, I was more of a fan of the references, like when Simpsons would do a reference to him. Or, you know, my dad was a huge fan of, you know, Dune and Blue Velvet and all these things. So I only knew David Lynch through kind of the grapevine, which I think kind of limited my my nervousness. I was like, oh, it's just this cool guy. Um, and then to answer your question, yeah, I, I think there's I think we're oversaturated with a lot of content. And when I watch movies these days, I, I remember working with Toby Maguire and I went the day like I, I got off set and I was sitting there. And I was watching This Boy's Life. And there was a scene when De Niro was driving the car with DiCaprio on the side. And his car is jerking back and forth, scaring him. The whole time I'm sitting there and I'm watching it, I'm like, they're not even driving, man. There's just two people on the side of the car just pushing it back and forth. And so it almost did sort of break down the illusion for me. Um, and then these days, I'm, ex- I'm exploring things like, you know, anime and uh, reading more. And I think if I were to kind of watch a television show, right, my girlfriend likes uh, the Great British Baking Show. And so my wife I, does I, too. Yeah, yeah, I watched funny. every single episode. Oh my gosh. Me too. Twice. Twice. It's underproved. It's underproved. I'm addicted um, to things I never thought I would be addicted to. I don't know. Same. I think it's the experience of hanging with my lady. It's the British yeah. thing too, though. Let's be honest. Yeah. 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 Just yeah. So, so, yeah. So back to James, the question about, oh, yeah. you know, we're talking about that influence that he gave you from the opportunity to get the opportunity to be on Twin Peaks, but then to learn from David Lynch, you talked about meditation, some other things. What else did you learn from him? And how do you use that every day now as he's some part of a mentor of yours to where you are today as an actor? Yeah, um, it's, I mean, it's still a daily challenge uh, in regards to, you know, life throws, its, life throws its things at you. And I think one thing that I learned from David Lynch and also a very common theme of season three is a sense of non-reactiveness or taking a moment and pausing. Uh, so not coming from a quick reactionary, but more of you know, taking a deep breath and logistically thinking of things. I remember, you know, that, man, I've been on so many film sets and you've got, you've got directors pulling their hair out or people getting fired left and right. And I was amazed at the fact that David um, meditates three times a day 
And it, you can, it, you can tell it trickles down. It resonates because everybody had a decent attitude. Everybody was so collaborative and joyous. And I think people were happy to be on that set. Um, and then, and then being directed by him, I, I watching how that set worked, it made me realize that anybody can truly make a film. Like it, it, you put it on a pedestal in your head, but you can do it. You know, you just have to, you have to do it. And, um, then the way he directs uh, was so unique that I've never worked with anybody like that before in, in his style. And so it was an honor to see that. Exactly. Wow. Now you're, yeah. you do what we do. I mean, you do, you have a podcast, right? So you're on the other side of the microphone or no? Yeah. I had What's two your podcasts. show all about? What do you talk about? Um, well, there, I have two. One is called um, Welcome to the Verse and it's a completely improvised um, podcast about two multi-dimensional TSA agents. Um, so anything can come and go. And then, <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> and then uh, the other one is called the production meeting that I do with my publicist and manager, Clint Morris, who I think, Neil, you know? Yeah, I've been working with Clint for how long? I don't know, maybe like eight years. He's a great guy. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I, I, words can't explain how grateful I am to uh, know him. He's done so much for my career. And this guy during the pandemic, we, we started this podcast and I got to interview all these older uh, celebrities. Um, so you interview celebrities. Yeah, it was a trip. Uh, there was a couple people who I was really uh, in awe with. And um, yeah, it was, it, you know, and each actor said at the end of every interview that we did uh, that the, what, how you should tackle this industry is create without expectation. So just create or artists, um, you never know how it's going to be uh, reciprocated. You never know, you know, who's going to judge it, who's going to love it. And the whole point of an artist is to simply create. Exactly. And so, yeah, that's where I learned. I learned a major lesson in the last few years. It's, it's yeah. a huge thing about creation because the fact is in social media, we don't know what's going to go well, what's not going to go well. We don't True. know what projects are going to go well, but you have to do it. And the problem is people yeah. don't want to push record. They don't want to do things. Well, I need to have do this, this, that. No, no, just do it because you never know what's going to go well or not. I mean, 12 years I've been in this industry and I started a just college radio station to grow to where I am today. And you were talking about Ray Liotta work with him. I interviewed Ray Liotta right when that show with uh, JLo just got canceled He and NBC mm -hmm. and he was flat out mad at JLo. It's funny. You have to go check out the podcast interview I did with Ray I will. Liotta. You know, yeah, a very wise man once said success is the enemy of no perfection is the enemy of success. Interesting point. Yeah. Let's, let's jump yeah. right to potato dreams of America. So what is your role in this? And, you know, you, you said this is the first time you're doing the, the tour thing in this type of a way. Um, tell us about it. Uh, yeah. Potato dreams of America. It's about a young gay uh, Russian and his mother who want to escape the persecution of Soviet Russia which I don't blame them. And they, uh, the mother hooks up with a, like a mail order bride situation. They come to the United States and it's this exploration of discovering and accepting of oneself. And there's a few twists and turns in it. And for the first time in my life, I'm normally a guy who plays, you know, cops, drug dealers, gangsters, um, or one time an angel. And I had this opportunity, Wes Hurley, who's the writer and director, and it's an autobiography about his life, uh, sat me down and wanted me to play a trans a woman character. And 
you know, I live in Seattle, Washington. There's a lot of sensitivity, especially in this area about that idea. And I was really resistant to it uh, because I was just like, I don't want to, you know, step in the wrong shoes. I don't want to do this role of disservice. Uh, but he was adamant and he, he was like, you're very, you have a lot of expression. You've got these big eyes and you look good on camera. And I was like, Hey, I'll do it. <laughs> um, he, he was adamant about it. And I, I was like, I'll do it if I can study, treat this with respect and learn as much as I can. Cause that's what we do as artists. And it was one of the most unique experiences, uncomfortable experiences and learning experiences of my life. And the cinematography was beautiful so it really everything looks really great but um i would i remember the first day i got on set I, I looked like me and i'm sitting here talking to a group of guys and we're all just bsing with each other and then uh they put me in a makeup chair put me in a dress wig a lot of beautiful makeup and um the same guys that i was talking to as me couldn't even make eye contact with me and that you know, a very, very tiny sliver of the experience of what it means to, you know, live that kind of a life as a trans individual. Um, and I guess the thing I walked away from that was, if you ever think you've got it hard, is someone out there has it a million times more difficult. Right. And so, you know, did you look whole, like a, did you look like a beautiful woman or did you look like a trans? I honestly, you know, uh, not just my, my opinion, but the opinion of many others is I was a very beautiful looking woman. <laughs> you know and so you know i got these eyes and i shaved and it's it just it looked beautiful so and did they not look at you because they were infatuated with your beauty and intimidated or what was the reason i honestly i think because you know in the context of what i was talking with these guys was, you know macho military stuff and you know we're like hey dudes and you know, kind of the normal way that I am. And then I think just observing the aesthetic of how I showed up uh, was just jarring, you know, and I don't blame them. But at the same time, it was just kind of this, this shift of perspective. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Like, I, oh, wow. I interviewed Caitlyn Jenner at, at Harvard. It, it's, it's a, a unique experience. <laughs> you work at Harvard? No, no he, I spoke there three times and uh, he, he was, was a guest there with that. We shared the stage. And that's great. Uh, you know, he shared his story about uh, it wasn't easy for him to come out of the closet at 67 or however old he was, you know, because he had everything going. A three time uh, Olympic champion, uh, married to a Kardashian, et cetera, et cetera. And mm -hmm. why did he do it? Because he felt like he was living a lie. You know, exactly. well, and we live in a time, too, where I, you know, there's so much polarization and division. But ultimate, ultimately, I think that that's just fed to us. And I think we're living through a time of enlightenment i think we're living through a time of acceptance it's the only way to live you know i've never been anybody to kind of hate on someone for just like living their truth i think that that seems kind of counterintuitive and unproductive and so you know it really is i have a couple of friends who are in their 50s that just came out as gay and it's one of those things it's like you know 40 years ago even 20 years ago it wasn't like that. And so I think we're, we're hopefully moving into a time of yeah. acceptance of whatever you want to be, just, you know, let people be who they want to be. Did anyone tell you, you look Russian, you could play a Russian uh, part. Are you Russian? 
That's, you that's look the like first a Russian. time I've ever had that. You look like a Russian. No, it's to be done. Even yeah. that's an Italian. <laughs> um, no, I'm half I'm half Irish and a little bit Italian, and then the rest is like Germany, UK. Um, but no, I took a Russian Russian dance class when I was in elementary school, so I'm well affiliated with the culture. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So, Dave, go ahead with your final questions and involving a caregiving question. Go ahead. Yeah, so I was just a normal guy who owns a gas station, minding my own business. My wife has this headache. We've been married for 47 years, 25 in. She, uh, she loses her speech, becomes paralyzed from a stroke. And we struggle for a couple of years, just trying to get our bearings and reinvent ourselves. And finally we do, and we, we fall back in love again. And, and now I become Dave, the caregiver's caregiver. I speak all over the world, spoke at Harvard and NASDAQ and uh, just got back from London at the London Stock Exchange with Nigel Farage, shared the stage with a bunch of people, helping caregivers to stay alive because 30% of them actually die before their loved ones. Did. I didn't know what a caregiver was when I became one. They had to tell me, uh, do you think about that in the future? Because everyone is either going to become a caregiver or need a caregiver. You know, your parents, your grandparents, close friend, uh, any experience yet? Oh, that's a really deep question. Um, that's a very good question. You know, funny enough, like a very, very micro example of that. I was just telling Neil before I got on the phone call is I'm in the process of putting my cat to sleep mm. and, um, mostly it's my partner, my tough. partners. Sure. It's really, I mean, yeah, it's really tough. I didn't expect that. And, um, I'm doing the best I can to show up for my partner right now. And, you know, that's a very minuscule example of, you know, kind of being a caregiver, stepping outside of yourself to help somebody else. Um, you know, I've never actually been, this, you know, quote. When you step outside yourself, you become more selfless. You, you help other people around you that actually gives you, you a more fulfilling um, sense of self. It's almost like a spiritual awakening. Uh, the one thing I'm learning about the last couple of years is that the one consistency in life is nothing is consistent and we're not going to stick around for, you know, we don't have a lot of time if you think about it. And so, you know, I, I most definitely plan on showing up for my loved ones uh, as we grow older. And I'm also, you know, I, I'm becoming reunited with my, my birth parents, uh, you know, in the last few years and they're old, <laughs> you know, and well, so- yeah. And I mean, ultimately, too, I think it's it's about putting putting definitely putting yourself and your perspectives aside and then just showing up with love. And I mean, what you just said, too, you spoke on reinvention. I'm 33, man. You know, I spent my 20s drinking, smoking tons of weed and chasing girls. And now I'm at a point where I'm I'm seeing the longevity and I'm beginning to uncover things that are much more important. And so kudos to you for sticking around and then not just sticking around for your lover, but um, going out and helping other people because that's what you have to do. Yeah, well, exactly. you do what you have to do. I mean, I'm glad nobody told me. I was on a need-to-know basis because I don't, I don't know how I would have reacted if I knew 25 years from now I'd still be dealing with this. You know, that's a scary thought. And, but my, mom, my, my stepmom's got Parkinson's um, and my, my father, uh, same thing. He will, he'll, he'll go through hell to yeah. uh, help yeah. help his wife yeah so and then i think we come up with another plan and is that 
Dave, you got to branch out to animals too for caregiving, teaching caregivers yeah. that are have. That I've done many help. shows on uh, animal caregivers. Absolutely. Yeah. That's huge. That's, That's beautiful. Animals are nicer than people, Neil, because they, they don't judge you. They love you unconditionally. When you get home, they're just so excited to see you and they don't want anything in return. Just feed them and rub their stomach. So I guess, I guess when they're suffering through a lot of tough things, it can still become stressful for that loved one. It's a close friend. Yeah. It's a close friend and you're seeing them go through that all. So again, James, uh, appreciate it. Where can we connect you, James? Best place to watch um, potato dreams of america yeah connect with you where can we go yeah y'all you can always find me on instagram or facebook uh rick sony uh g-r-i-x-o-n-i and um potato uh goes on demand next month and then in a few months i'm going out to the uk to shoot a film called buckle up uh which is a british gangster film and growing up watching movies like lock stock and snatch uh i am beyond ecstatic and um, yeah, I mean, 007, baby, <laughs> and uh, James Bond. Um, and yeah, you can always find me on social media. And if you're ever in Seattle, Washington, uh, I help uh, out at a yoga studio called Mind Body Hum. Uh, oh. We do sound healing, uh, yoga, and meditation. And so I just, I really appreciate both you gentlemen and Dave, man. What an amazing story you just shared as well. Thank uh, you. But I, I really appreciate both of you and thank you so much for allowing me to plug this film. If appreciate you need it. any caregivers, send them to caregiverdave.com. Exactly. Caregiverdave.com. Thank and you so much. Follow, and follow his Facebook page, uh, Caregiver yeah. Dave. It's Caregiver really Dave. a good one with some great information for caregiving. Appreciate you guys. Take care. And that was again, the Caregiver Dave celebrity segment. Take care guys. Hi everyone. And welcome to the Mike Velarde show. And I'm excited oh. to welcome to the show. Mike Velarde. Mike, what's going on? How are you? Good, Neil. How are you? How are you feeling? I'm hey, I'm doing better. It's a, always a good day, and uh, can't believe we're almost through the first month of the year. And what's been going on? Well, uh, last week Joe Biden reversed Trump's policy on drilling in Alaska. At the time he did it, oil was at about seventy-eight dollars a barrel, and he quickly moved up to over eighty-one. Today we're looking at close to eighty-six. Gasoline prices as a result have jumped about 14 cents a gallon. So next week, when you go to fill up your car, you are going to see huge price increases at the pump. How much? Well, at least, at least that's the wholesale was 14. So you're looking at 20 cents at the pump probably. By the time they add their taxes, their markup and everything else. So you're talking 20 cents a gallon next week. You'll see it. Wow. And 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 don't think it's not going to 100 because it is. So we're going to have $4 gas very soon. And the real killer is the heating oil because people in Minnesota, New York, where they're having all these storms, they now can't afford to buy heating oil. Heating oil has more than doubled since Joe Biden took office. So the heating bills are going to be a lot higher. A lot higher. Yep. So what are you thinking? Like, so for example, we were having such savings and heating because of fracking. Is that the reason they're cutting fracking out? No, Joe, Joe Biden, this is part of the Green New Deal, you know, and as a result of stopping oil drilling, fracking, everything else, we are now dependent again, once again, on Saudi Arabia for oil. And Saudi Arabia wanted at least $80 a barrel. They got that and it's going higher and they're probably going to push it to 100 Gosh. Okay. So basically what's saying is he, that's going to really 
hurt people. So that instead of eating out, they have, they are paying for heat. Yep. Yep. And all because of Joe Biden's poor decision. Of course, this man is a man who for 46 years in politics has only made poor decisions. I mean, I just heard him on the news um, this morning saying that Afghanistan, he couldn't have done anything better. Takes no responsibility for when he screws up. Doesn't even have a clue as to, you know, he, he did that purely for, um, purely for political purposes. He wanted to be able to say on 9-11, you know, that, um, you know, we were out of there, whatever. But uh, he left $385 billion of equipment behind. He's an abject failure in everything he does. What about what about Russia and Ukraine? What's you know what? Happen? That's another slip up he made the other night saying, well, it'll only be a minor incursion into this. So he basically gave Putin the green light to go take it. So will we will do anything once he takes it? No, of course not. What about the rest of the world? No, we're going to talk about sanctions. We're going to talk about what, who's going to who's going to step up and lose people over Russia. And then Russia will become more powerful. Of course it will. I mean, Joe, Joe Biden is exactly what Russia wants. And so let's say if Trump was president, would Trump allow Putin to invade Ukraine? Putin wouldn't even be thinking about this. It would not, it would not even be an option. So, our military lost 700 pilots, those that the fighter pilots, because they wouldn't get vaccinated. Now, this vaccine is turning out to be a real joke. Um, you know, not, I mean, you get the vaccine and then you, and then you have to get the booster shots because it's not effective. So it's really not a vaccine. It changes your messenger RNA is what it does. It changes your makeup of who you are. It changes your, your ability to fight off other diseases. And as a result, people are dying. And people are seeing that happen. I personally, as you know, lost my dear friend, Bob Clement, right. five days after getting the booster shot. You know, he had a heart attack and passed. Um, but he's, he's one of many my goodness that's okay. terrible yeah right right exactly and, you, and then what about for the va the vaccines is just a more risk than getting COVID yeah I mean yeah I mean it, it is it is truly um, truly crazy because what's happening is the vaccine is doing more harm than good. People are saying it's not effective. Well, there's an outbreak of the vaccinated. It's happening in Australia. It's happening in New York City. How do you explain that? Out of nowhere, all the people that got the vaccine are now getting the new variant. Then they say, well, then you have to get an Omicron variant. Right. So what, what's wrong with this picture? 
it almost seems to me, and I could be wrong, but they're putting the new variant in the booster shots. Right. And then everyone gets the booster, then there's an outbreak of a new variant. So when's the next variant coming, Mike? It'll definitely be before the election. There is no way this thing goes away before the election. No. I think, I think there'll probably be a new variant before that too, Mike. Yeah, they probably will. A couple of months. Yep. A couple so of months will go by. Why does Fauci seem like he wants to wash his hands and say, this is it. This Omicron was the last of it. Well, I think Fauci realizes too that he's been caught lying. They got a lot of stuff on Fauci. They really do. And he's going to, he's probably going to want to lay low for a while. Hmm. They, Interesting. They, they traced his money, how he's involved in this financially, how he's making money from it. I mean, Fauci, there's a lot of issues. A lot of things are starting to come out. So you think if you pulled Democrats across the country now, or do you think you're better off with Biden than, than Trump? What do you think they would say? Well, there's, there's few that could say no, but they'll give you a reason to justify it. I mean, let's be honest, right? Back, get, uh, oil went from $40 a barrel to 80. Who does that make? unless you own Exxon stock, who's better off? Right, not the consumer. Not the consumer. You went from $1.69 to $3.30, $3.29. And everything else has gone up. Meats have gone up. Going out to eat is now more expensive. Everything is more costly because of the fact that oil has doubled. Okay. And, you know, like I said, now we're in the middle of winter. This guy makes a decision to change horses in midstream, stop drilling in Alaska in January. If he would have waited till May, people wouldn't have felt it. It almost seems to me, Neil, that this is intentional. You just can't be that stupid. That you're going to cut off your oil supply in January right, in the middle of all these winter storms and absolutely do damage to everybody that needs heating oil. We're talking the entire Northeast, Northwest, all, uh, I mean, Minnesota, Chicago, Philadelphia, Boston, New York City. You just increased everybody's heating oil bill by 30%. And they still will say, so you, you think that they'll say they're not better, they're better, they were better off with Donald Trump, or will they not, or they'll justify it because of who Trump was? Well, they might say who Trump was and say, well, we can't have a president, blah, 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 because he was, he, he's a mean tweeter. But the reality is you have to, you live, everybody's lived, 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 lives better under Trump, Trump policy. So if Trump could have controlled himself, he would keep, he'd, still, he'd still be president. Well, you know, I, I, my own personal belief is that George Soros said it a year before the election. He said, there's no way Trump will be president in 2020 because he knew the fix was in. He was, he was funding all those ballots that were never folded, okay? And they had no down ballot on them, just Joe Biden president, Joe Biden president, 242,000 in Pennsylvania alone. So 
they were going to do whatever they had to do to make sure that Trump wasn't going to win again because Trump is an, is an American first president and these people are globalists. And the only way the globalists can win is by taking down America. And Joe right. Biden has been very effective in doing that. Very effective. Got it. Right? Because like I said, common sense, right? If you want to do what's right for the people, you do not cut off your oil supply in January when people are going to need it the most. So true. All right. So let's talk about other things going on uh, politics wise. Anything else you want to ch chat about? Yes. Um, Governor DeSantis announced he's, he's requesting $6 million from the state legislature here in Florida to get a, basically election police to start a new unit of detectives that will only investigate election fraud. And he's asking for 52 people and for it to be funded so that if there's any rumors of anything, things could be investigated beforehand. And on election night, they will be where they need to be to inspect ballots, be with the uh, supervisor of elections to make sure that no fraud takes place. I think it, it's the first it's the first of its kind in the nation. I think it's a brilliant idea. I think it's something that needs to be done. They will have arrest authority. So if they run into a situation where they won't let the Republicans in the room or they're going to pull the, the, the back boxes out from under the desk and start stuffing the machines or they find 5,000 ballots in the parking lot, that will be instantaneously investigated right then and there. And I think if nothing else, just the threat of it, it's like having the criminal division of the IRS. You know, in Canada, they everything's civil. In America, you have the criminal division. If you're gonna be blatant about stealing your taxes, or you're gonna get arrested. So it's a definite deterrent. And right. I think that would definitely stop a lot of it because now you're looking at five years in jail. And you have people whose sole responsibility is to investigate election fraud. And that election, it's just interesting when you look at that and you look at the election and fraud and that potentially now you have the right people at least investigate it. In other countries where there's election fraud, do they have something like that? Well, where there's election fraud, probably not. I mean, you're going to go to Venezuela, they're going to cheat all the time. Of course, they're not going to have any election integrity, they don't want it, just like these democratic states. I told you what happened to my friend, Tom Murphy. He yeah. went to vote and he noticed that his father had already voted. And he said to the guy, wait, is that my father since you see, he was here earlier. Here really, so the man's been dead and buried for five years. They told him not to worry about it. But he was a registered Democrat. So when you're a dead registered Democrat, they vote for you and nobody thinks it's fraud because he was a Democrat. Wow. And what does that do? That makes sure that you have a one party state. Because now the Republican on the other side has to overcome not only the Democratic votes, but the dead Democratic votes. And that's what's tough to do. And even in California, in the recall election, there were, there, were, there were reports of people going to vote and they were told you already voted. They said, no, I didn't. Yeah, you did. You have to put in a, you know, a provincial ballot because we already have you as voting. So they vote for people. So when you have 
election police, okay, then those things would be investigated. And that would stop a lot of the fraud. I don't think the Democrats want to stop the fraud no. because in reality, they can't win based on their platform. Joe Biden's platform is not a winning platform. We're going to, we're going to double the price of oil. We're going to bankrupt the whole country and everybody's going to be poor because I'm president. That's not a winning platform. That's not what people want. People want to live better, not worse. People want more freedoms, not less. And so the Democrats come in and through regulation, take away your freedoms and up your costs. And so as a result, that's why they're frantically trying to get this, this voter fraud bill through because it would guarantee, look, 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 look what's in the bill, no voter ID. Now, why wouldn't you want voter ID? There's one reason, because those dead Civil War veterans can't prove that they don't have any ID anymore. They're dead. So if you had voter ID, you would never have mail and balloting. Mail, mail and dollars. Or if you did, what would have to happen is you have to take a picture of that ID and attach it to the ballot. And that can't be fixed. It would be very difficult to do it. You have to make up a lot of IDs. It's one big extra step. And then if it is fake, it can be verified. So they get, the, they get the license number. Now they run it through the computer. Hey, wait a minute. This is not a real license. That ballot don't count. See, voter ID is going to substantially decrease the amount of voter fraud that can take place. And that's why they're so against it. Because they need those dead people votes to win. They need fraud to win. Right. And they can't win on their ideas. They don't have better ideas. All right. I mean, look at Look at all the Democratic-run cities. Who wants to live there? Anyone going, I can't wait to get to New York. We got a new liberal mayor. I can't wait to be under him. No. No. 20 years, they had Republican mayors in New York City, and it was the nicest city in the world. Mm -hmm. Okay, Giuliani went in there, got rid of the crime, did a tremendous job. Bloomberg comes in and, and keeps his policies in place, which was the smartest thing he could have done. Okay, and then he and he got the term limit thing reversed for one, so we could run a third term. And for twenty years, New York City was great. Yes. Bill De Blasio gets in, and he destroys it. Mm -hmm. Okay, crime is out of control. All these left wing make taking season hotels, putting homeless people in them, destroying the hotels. He's made it. You no, know, who wants to go to New York City right now? Wow. So that's no all right. So let's talk, Mike. Any other politics? We've talked a lot today. Anything else to add? Yeah. Well, you know, as far as far as the politics go, I think we should see a record number of Republicans win in Congress this time around. Um, I think you're going to have very low Democratic turnout. I think Democrats are, be, are embarrassed by Joe Biden and his policies. Um because it smacks against what they thought the Democratic Party was for. You know, I have cousins who I love dearly who are very Democratic. And when I asked them, why do you vote Democratic? They said, well, the Democrats are for the little people, the small people. And I said, really? 
I said, there's 10 year old girls freezing to death in Minnesota because of Joe Biden's policy on heating oil that doubled the cost and their mothers can't afford to keep them warm. How does that help the poor people? It doesn't. So it's become very blatant that his policies are hurting the poor people the most. He's hurting his base more than anybody. And so as a result, I think you're going to see a very low Democratic turnout. There's no enthusiasm to get Democrats in office. All right. All right. Well, perfect, Mike. Uh, I guess to finish out, what's the call to action? Republicans come out to vote. That's exactly the call to action, right? And if there's fraud in 2022, it's over. It is over, yeah. We, we, if we, the Republicans we, don't take the House and Senate, it's, it's over. You won't, 2024 won't matter. It won't matter, no. Because what could happen, just to understand? Because what's going to happen is what he couldn't get through this time around, this, this vote of fraud legislation, they'll be able to get it through in 2023 after the election. Because of? Because, because they're going to be, if they, if they hold the Senate and they get one more vote, right? They'll be able to get it through. So, so it, it, it really, now, you know, the way the Senate works, there's, for, two, for, for every two years, there's 33 seats are up, and then on the, on the sixth year, 34 are up. So out of those 33 seats that are up this year in the Senate, 20 are held by Republicans, and the other 13 held by Democrats. So, the Democrats do have a really good shot to pick up some seats because there's more Republicans that are running for re-election than Democrats. Okay. All right, we're going to wait and see, right? It's all important, Mike. All update people need to get the right marketing out there. They got to be out there on social media. Uh, politics, especially being creative in the way they're out promoting stuff because of the mm -hmm. censoring in social media and everything as Republicans to speak about why people should vote Republican over Democrat. And if they don't do that and they don't use social media, like Trump was able to use social media to win the election in 2020. And I mean, I'm sorry, in 2016, and then Biden used it, social media in 2020, there, there definitely has to be some creativity in 2022. So take care Mike, MikeFlordyBooks.com and also WinningTaxSolutions.com. I appreciate you, Mike, and we'll talk next week. Thanks, Neil. We'll have a guest next week. All right. I look forward to it. That was the Mike Florida Show, guys. Take care.